One of our pupils, Susan Foreman, came into this yard. Really? In here? Young man, is it reasonable to suppose that anybody would be inside a cupboard like that? Mm. What do you say, Perry? We can go on nature walks, have picnics, and jolly evenings around the campfire. Gentlemen, I've got news for you. This lighthouse is under attack, and by morning we might all be dead. It's a brilliant idea. It's so simple, only you could have thought of it. Oh. I'm the doctor. These are my new best friends. I'm the doctor, and if there's one thing I can do, it's talk. This is the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast with your host, Eric Branson. My dear, I don't think he's as stupid as he seems. My dear, nobody could be as stupid as he seems. Now drop your weapons, or I'll kill him with this deadly jelly, baby. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. On this podcast, we travel all of time and space discussing Doctor Who in a completely random order. This time we land at the Black Archive number 19, the 11th hour by John Arnold. More like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. I'm going to need a swap team ready to mobilise street-level maps covering all of Florida, a pot of coffee, 12 jammy dodgers and a fez. An apple a day keeps the, uh... No, never mind. Allons-y. I'm sorry? It's French. Well, let's go. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast, the podcast in which we randomly explore the world of Doctor Who. I'm Eric Branson, and with me, as always, is my co-host and partner on these travels, Mr. Asad Keski. How's it going Hello. today, Asad? Uh-huh. Everything's going good. Good. Excited to be recording another session. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome back, and always grateful for you, or grateful to you for being here. I appreciate making time for this and uh hopefully it's been as fun as i i've been having fun with it but <laughs> for sure yeah so um yeah how have things been going is the the weather here has been getting very nice i don't know if you guys are having yeah uh, we're here in uh, ohio the weather was bring, going pretty well and then uh today and yesterday it's gotten a little more wet and chilly Hmm, okay. Tomorrow should again be a little wet and chilly, but hopefully yeah, by the weekend it should be more pleasant. I think we're in, in for a dose of wet and chilly tomorrow as well. But right. anyway, it's uh we've had a few little like previews of spring or previews of summer and some nice days and getting outside and doing stuff. Yeah. So help my brother in law build a um playset for his daughter in the backyard, like one of those big like wooden, you know, a million pieces, you know, the the uh, instruction manual had like 290 some steps, you know, of all the lumber you have to like drill together and build this. I don't know. It was a project. Good times. <laughs> yeah. We put about. You've customized with some uh, Doctor Who additions somewhere in there. <laughs> uh, I wish. I don't think there's any room for customization on those things. You, you steer away from the plan and the whole thing probably like looks sideways when you're done or whatever, but. You need to so. just add some like TARDIS decals or something at the very least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I should. When I go back and see the finished product, I didn't even we didn't even finish it the day that uh, I was out there. But yeah, so anyway, that was the kind of ringing in summer event for me, I suppose. But <laughs> so anything uh, new in the world of Doctor Who? I know you mentioned uh, we were talking just briefly before about Chicago TARDIS and making travel plans for that. Um, that is going ahead as as far as i know they are making yep. guest announcements uh yeah. hotel and, block uh, is uh, they've had their said they're going to be putting out some more rooms in the hotel block i guess yeah they sold out of the first block so that's good yeah 
yeah, I'm so. looking forward to it and hope everything is, you know, back to normal enough that everybody can be there and be comfortable and uh, right. <laughs> yeah, just have oh. a good time. And it was a bummer to have to miss it last. Well, I mean, not really miss it. We all did the best we could, but, and I really think they did a great job with the online version of Chicago right. TARDIS, but yeah, nothing's like, it's not know, the same. <laughs> yeah. Not the same as being there. So looking have forward to, look to that. Some custom mosques or something. Yeah. yeah for Which I assume we're still going to be, you know, in the, realm of do it i mean i think i personally would decide to wear one either way but um yeah custom yeah. masks would be a cool idea maybe they could throw that in with the price of admission <laughs> <laughs> probably not but i would buy one i would pay for one so um, but yeah that's my that's my hometown convention and and honestly it's the only di dedicated doctor who convention that i go i've been going to on a regular basis and have attended so yeah that's uh looking forward to that i feel like that'll be the real, you know, the sign that everything's getting back to normal, slowly but surely. Yeah, yeah it was my first, Chicago uh, Tardis was the first major convention that uh, I attended and I've started attending more and different ones here and there, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm planning on, like I was telling you before, the pandemic really put a, um, yeah, put a crimp in my plans for, but I was planning on starting to expand. Like I was looking at, you know, doing some of the, and maybe not all of them are like Doctor Who dedicated sure. stuff, but uh, sci-fi conventions that had Doctor yeah, Who yeah. events just around the region and stuff. But yeah. I mean, I, I would so. definitely recommend uh, Convergence. I've been there a couple of, yeah. in Minneapolis. Yep. So that one's high on the list. I attended much of their um, online convention this year, okay. which that's been, that's been a really cool, um, silver lining to the online conventions is that I've been able to, you know, attend quote unquote, um, a bunch of different conventions that I may not have, you know, been able to, or, or even known about. Um, yeah. And I've been able to kind of experience those. And so that, that's right. certainly one, uh, the convergence in Minneapolis is certainly one, uh, high on my list and I'll probably try to get there. Yeah. Um, maybe even this year, we'll see. So yeah, I suppose uh, we did come here to talk about a book today. So we <laughs> dive into that. Um, <laughs> this uh, this one is interesting, and and I think this is a, one of the challenges. Is that a few challenges to the format of the show have kind of poked their head up as uh, you know as we've gone along, and that is we do the selection for what we review on the show completely at random it's not just a, a joke or a, a gimmick like it's i have like literally a randomizer app that i've kind of built a couple layers into it and just throw the stuff in and it spits something out so that's uh um so this time around we got a, an interesting book and something i've been interested in um the Black Archive series from Obverse Books um, publishes a, and what the Black Archive is, is a series of critical works, each um, that are kind of, I'd say short books, but long, considering they are focusing just on one episode. So it's like an in-depth analysis of one episode or story um, nice. of Doctor Who. And um, unfortunately, this I, I own a couple of them, but they've been kind of just sitting on my shelf. I've never <laughs> pulled them out and read them uh, until this one spun up. And this is the Black Archive number 19 about the episode The Eleventh Hour, and it was written by John Arnold. And 
Yeah. So one of the interesting challenges to doing a book like this is it's a in-depth um, look at the episode, the 11th hour and trying to do a review of John Arnold's book and not of the 11th hour is kind of, <laughs> I feel uh, going to be the challenge of this show. And uh, yeah. And we'll especially just... since, as we said, the it's not really a review of the episode and there's somehow there doesn't seem to be all that much discussion of the episode. There's itself. really not. Yeah. That was one of my comments that I made uh, kind of in my wrap up that I, I wrote, but I, I don't mind saying it and I'll probably repeat myself as I do, but <laughs> the, uh, um, it isn't, you're absolutely right. Like he doesn't, he, he spends a lot of time talking about conceptually, like what, this episode means to the you know the whole Mo kind of Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who and and what it means in terms of you know changing the show and um, what it means in terms of the future of the show how it relates to the past um, but yeah it doesn't spend much time actually talking about the eleventh hour which I thought was interesting uh, he's it does right make me interested he... in seeing reading more books of the um, from the Black Archive to see what sort of approach um, they take. Yeah, it's kind of like if you were to, you know, go and collect all of these, uh, and they're still, it's, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing um, series, and from where they're at, and how many they've covered so far, I assume it'll be an ongoing series for many <laughs> years to come, um, but it, uh, if you were to collect this whole archive, you know, the Black Archive, um, you'd have probably, like, one of the coolest, like, most in-depth guides to Doctor Who that, you know, would ever existed because we're spending and like I said it's it's not it's not an incredibly long book for like a nonfiction or critical work but for an, a, a one episode um review or guide it 85 pages on one episode is uh quite a bit I mean that's a pretty in-depth dive so I felt like it was a really easy read and it didn't feel like it was yeah. 85 pages long it's quick and uh yeah, I thought definitely easier to read than the other sort of critical, I mean, analytical texts that I've read, which is um, the <laughs> right. Tardis Eruditorum. Oh, yeah. I have the the first one of those, the Hartnell. Um, yeah. But the so first volume those are, of Hartnell, uh, I guess. But. It's an interesting and dense uh, read. <laughs> yeah. And this one I found to be very light and um, not that it wasn't informative and didn't uh, like pose a lot of good stuff about the show, but it was a super easy to read. Uh, it had kind of a fun pace to it he didn't spend a whole lot of time on one thing he'd kind of move um right. quickly on so yeah it was it's a good good read so i think um i think we should jump into and and, and i'd mentioned that i had this was my first dive into the black archive had you ever read any of those books i knew you were familiar with them as well but yeah no i mean it was one of those things which i had uh, seen references to and i think i'd seen other people mentioning them and I even had gone to their website a few times I had just never actually bought anything <laughs> so <laughs> um I bought uh and and would encourage you know any of anybody who's interested uh, as well to go out and do so but I did buy um the first time I went to Obverse Books and purchased from them was a uh silver archive book and a, the silver archive is an offshoot of the black archive series that are non-doctor who television review books and yeah. um our friend and uh sometimes 
guest on the show, Matthew Kressel, wrote a book on the Dark Skies series. So okay. I went and bought, I went and purchased a copy of that. Um, I had, still haven't watched Dark Skies, so I haven't read it. It's on my like list in a couple of places to to watch. But um, yeah, I'd be just because you know knowing Matthew and uh, just right. wanted to get a copy of it while it was fresh off the presses. So um, it, <laughs> I have that one, and then I have. Um, Stacy Smith's book, writing as Robert Smith at the time, um, she she wrote on the Silurians, Doctor Who and the Silurians. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's where I first heard about um, obverse books from uh, seeing that she had written uh, one of the treaties, and I, I I'm surprised I never actually picked it up because I I love the I love series seven. So yeah, I was going to say probably I, go I back know, yeah. and fix that. <laughs> big third doctor and, and the brig yeah. <laughs> fan right so, yes. um yeah and, I, and again i like i i'm embarrassed to admit but that's that's also been sitting on the shelf there's just yeah i will i promise i will read it someday because i really enjoy her critical work as well like i very much so i think the first time that i ever talked to her was when uh i went and actually had one of my books signed by her and then and getting to like you know, getting to know her a little bit and work with her has been a really cool experience. And, and I, so I feel bad. I'm just, you know, out here saying I bought the book, but I didn't read it. Sorry, but <laughs> it happens. So, um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the 11th hour um, review by John Arnold. And I think the main thing and the first thing I want to dive into is he is very interested in the idea of regeneration and not just regeneration as we all know that you know a time lord you know physiologically can change their body and and then the actor you know behind the scenes we change the actor playing the lead role right. but the re also the ability of the series itself to regenerate and um he and i haven't read it but he also wrote the episode or wrote the black archive book on the episode rose which is, of right. course, you know, the first yeah. um, the first Christopher Eccleston story and like the first episode of the rebirth of Doctor Who in 2005. And so I think beyond just his discussion of it here, I think it's something that interests him because that's, you know, certainly a, another point where this, the show kind of reinvented itself. Right. And um, so maybe he's, you know, the obvious choice to tackle this one. Um, but yeah, so he sees the 11th hour as kind of the beginning of a new era that changes a lot of things that people understood about Doctor Who. And the first major test, I mean, they they did change the lead actor, of course, when Eggleston left the show and they brought David Tennant in, but they, you know, their, their supporting cast stayed there, their writers and producers stayed. Right. Um, it was, you know, generally the story the storyline kind of just continued and uh, took that trajectory. The things we knew about the show didn't change a whole lot. So it was comfortable. I think it was right. a good idea. Although I don't think they intended that Christopher Eccleston kind of surprised them. Right. Um, <laughs> I think it was a good idea to keep all of that other stuff to get everybody through. I mean, I'm thinking people that just picked it up with 2005 to get everybody through that first regeneration so that all that yeah. comfortable stuff is still there and you still feel like you understand them, the show. Yeah. And I think just the fact that Eccleston was there for one year meant that people had much were a little less invested in the character of the Doctor, and him yeah. changing was not maybe such a big deal as how beloved uh, David Tennant got. So yeah, then I'm sure that there was a certain uncertainty whether the show could survive changing the lead actor from that. 
Yeah. Well, and I, and I think you saw a lot of that in the initial and every time they change actors, obviously there's some initial griping like, oh, that person is just not right for the role. And, yada, <laughs> yada. and you know, most most of the time it goes away and it, it you know, the grumbles kind of diminish as time goes on. And um, curiously enough, this is right when I was first starting to watch Doctor Who is right when they had cast Matt Smith. Okay. So I was just seeing series three and four around the time they made that announcement. Um, so it was interesting because I think I kind of had that reaction too, which I don't know why, because if you're used to, it was Eccleston, then it was Tennant, and then it, you know, and then here comes Matt Smith. I feel like that, oh, he's just too young argument doesn't hold a whole lot of weight. Cause I mean, although he was the youngest actor to ever have taken the role on, I mean, does he really appear that much younger than David Tennant? <laughs> like, I mean, it's a, uh, um, I think some of it is just that uh, whole thing. <laughs> I don't know whether to call it uh, some element of elitism or something in the old guard that we don't want our doctor to be young and sexy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's the thing, I guess that's probably how I, I came to it a little bit like, Oh, that's kind of a, I thought it was an odd choice um, being that they kind of went from a young, good looking guy to certainly different looking, but kind of also young, good looking guy, you know, right. just kind of um, I thought they would, mix it up a little bit which you know obviously he ends up doing with the next regeneration but um yeah so it's i was definitely a little uncertain about him i mean i i didn't know him from adam uh right that's yeah. so i had no idea what he was going to be like but sure i i think i did have in the back of my mind some hesitation about his youth and everything but um you know i was certainly gave it a chance and i'm glad i did <laughs> yeah yeah, same here. And so this is Stephen Moffat's first series, and he is the, you know, former guy who ruined Doctor Who before Chris Chibnall took over for him in that regard. Um, and so he's first series as showrunner and uh, also the first series. So everybody changes. This is the first, like, major changing of the guard in the new series. You know, showrunner, the, all three of the producers change. Um, you know, m- most of the writing group of writers is new um obviously matt smith karen gill and arthur darville come in for the first time in their respective roles as doctor and companions um so yeah it's the first time it's really shakes up everything and i feel like stephen moffat you know and then arnold like john arnold really spends a lot of time talking about the differences and that stephen moffat really shook up more than just the cast but the entire show and kind of what the backbone of of doctor who is and obviously he uh has his own little has his own take on that that's a little bit different from what russell davies was doing with it um so yeah what yeah. was you what was your um and we'll, we'll we'll try to talk about it in context of the book but when reading this like what do you agree with um or what did, what did you get out of this idea of regeneration um as a concept not only in in narrative but also behind the scenes and do you think it, it was as big of a shift? John Arnold really makes a point that this was a big shift for the show and a big test for it. What, what do you make of all of that? <laughs> I think I do agree. I, I didn't think of it in the same terms as you did about as uh, regeneration, which I think is a pretty interesting and uh, accurate way to look at it. I was thinking of it just more as the transition of um, the production teams and I think just in a more 
concrete way I was thinking about it, but I, 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 I prefer the concept of thinking about it as the regeneration into something, someone totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably, and I agree with the, what he's uh, said. I think part of it is also that I'm, uh, I'm a fan of Moffat's uh, approach and era uh, towards Doctor Who, and I think that. Uh, uh, the writer, I think that John Arnold also is, um, expresses some of my thoughts about um, Moffat. And he does spend a lot of time talking about uh, Davies' uh, era of the show as well. But, I mean, it's, and if we talk about how this book is written, it's interesting that like the sections are basically what he's talking about. Larger concepts spends a lot of time talking about Stephen Moffat's career in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gives you a good history to pretty much everybody involved. Yeah, in and um, and about the general concepts about the companions and general concepts about the Doctor, some information that I wasn't familiar with about some of the decisions that like Matt Smith and all the other production people made. So... Mm-hmm. so but I think I went away from uh, your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> My so, question was pretty, uh, it contained a lot of things. So yeah, I don't feel like we have, we'll talk, we yeah. can talk about it for a while. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think I, I, I agree with, uh, overall, I guess I'd just say that I agree. <laughs> yeah. And I think I agree with you and also agree with, with, with John Arnold about that. It really was kind of a reinvention or maybe more of a, maybe not, let's not go that far, but like a reassessment of what it is that Doctor Who is about. I think that's the biggest thing that is the difference for me between the Russell Davies era, which certainly I, I don't dislike. Um, I like a lot of episodes a lot and some are even among my favorites and right. I got nothing against David Tennant. David Tennant's an amazing, talented actor and, and uh, um, I think he did some great things with with what he was given with Doctor Who and no, no real complaints. And I'm not going to go, you know, on record and say, I dislike it in any way, but I feel like something changed and I was a little skeptical to it when I first saw it, but now that I go back and revisit it. And now that I also see it in context of the entire history of Doctor Who, Stephen Moffat brought something. And this is the, something the Moffat haters are going to really like, you know, (laughs) disagree with me on and that's fine. But Stephen Moffat brought something back to the character of the Doctor and something back to the narrative of Doctor Who that was missing from the 2005 show until he showed up with the with the 11th hour. And I've always tried to put my finger on exactly what that is. And I think it's multifaceted. And um, so I think it's what John Arnold points out in this book is that there are a couple of major changes in the doctor as a character. And if we think about those things, I think I can start to finally, this this book actually might've helped me put it together in my head, really put my finger on what it is I like better about the Stephen Moffat era than I do about the Russell Davies era. And that's seems to be an unpopular, not as much now that Chris Chibnall has come in and he's the target of all the, you know, slinging. Um, but it, uh, it seems to be a bit of an unpopular opinion, but something of the magic came back right um i mean yeah he definitely makes it more magical and they even refer to it about how 
And I guess Stephen Moffat, they've mentioned how he dislikes it when people <laughs> sort of refer to his era of Doctor Who as sort of like a more fairy tale-ish Great. version yeah. of things. I mean, there are a lot of... I mean, I, I think one can fully acknowledge that Doctor Who would not have come back if somebody of the stature of Russell Davies had not been willing to take it on. Right. And, um, I have like total, I'm totally grateful to him for having done that. Yeah. I right. like yes, a lot absolutely. of his ideas. Yeah. I'm not always the biggest fan of some of his writing. Yeah. I, I and, think I, I agree with you there, which again, that's that, that can, uh, that's a, a comment that can get you some, some side eyes sometimes at conventions <laughs> and such, but right. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I think that here also he sort of, I kind of actually liked he sort of like how it describes how the, David Tennant's finale is just like such a total excess, like yeah. Caligula or something. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a lot of fun in hindsight, and I can go back and enjoy it. But um, yeah, I, I have some gripes with with the Davies era in general, and I think John Arnold brings out a great one that I never even really thought of, um, and that's that in a show that you know was famous for, you know, all throughout its original run, reinventing itself, not only through the concept of regeneration, but like we talked about before, being able to survive these changes, your main actor, your main cast, uh, your writers, your your producers, and just go throughout time by, you know, being able to kind of shift enough that you're telling new, fresh stories that, you know, feel acceptable in their given era but that it's still familiar enough that it keeps, you know, keeps the fan base interested. Um, Russell Davies for taking on something that is that versatile. And John Arnold points this out, on, I believe on page 13 here, but he basically says that um, for, for something that is such has such a flexible format, Dr. Who is often cited for having a flexible format an ability to adapt itself to survive and avoid getting stale. The Davies era became an exercise in mining a, for, a formula as far as it can be taken. The season ending stakes never became even ever bigger to conceal this. Right. Basically, that was a terrible reading, but basically <laughs> um, he, 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 he mentions how, you know, Russell Davies kind of approach to adapting Doctor Who from modern audiences is to make it very comfortable, make it kind of feel like a kitchen sink, what he calls a kitchen sink drama, kind of a soap opera type, comfortable right. drama show with relatable characters. And then he sticks to that. It's it's always the same, you know, even we, we, we lose Rose, but then we get Martha who has a little bit different type of romantic relationship with the doctor as in, you know, she wants one, he doesn't, but there's still, I mean, the, the main crux of it is still, companion pining after the doctor <laughs> um, right yeah. yeah yeah and um yeah there's a lot of like similarity i think in the family dramas that all the companions have in the davies era there's always a lot of issues that are going on with the family the family the family of the companions are very important characters in the narrative Self, which sometimes can get a little yeah i don't know yeah <laughs> and just, he spends a just, lot of time talking about in uh, uh yeah, john and does spend a lot of time talking about just those sort of um elements like how rose starts out with a basic domestic life of uh, you know you wake up you go to the store you meet up with your boyfriend and re repeat that 
ad infinitum, ad nauseum <laughs> until the store dummies come to life, as opposed to how things start off in the 11th hour, which mm-hmm. is very, again, well, sort of fairy tale-ish. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mind saying it because it's true for certainly for this story. Uh, but I would say his the entire long story arc of with Amy Pond, I think is, right. you know, it's it is very fairy tale esque. And but I think that's kind of what I was, you know, get hinting at with, you know, getting bringing some of the magic back. And that is um, I was going to say that I think that Moffat just has a very. There's some there's a bit something about his writing that to my ear, crackles it always comes out with a lot of memorable lines and not one-liners but just like memorable lines and mm-hmm. memorable sort of concepts and yeah th- this episode the 11th hour has so many quotable lines and so many just wonderful moments like almost you want to i've seen this one this is among one of my favorite episodes probably it's it's certainly my favorite uh regeneration episode or maybe it's tied with spearhead from space is my favorite but um anyway it's it's the best regeneration episode i think and uh it's up there in my top best episodes period and really because it's just so fun and well written and funny and everything i I like that you said crackles because it just feels I don't know it's got so many of those great moments where you just feel like standing up and cheering or you know yeah, you're just yeah. right along with it and it's i don't know it's paced well it it feels definitively if you've just come off of the last david Tennant special straight into this it feels like a different show and i think that right. does jar people that aren't used to it yeah but for me it's always like a fresh breath of air and it's exciting and it doesn't always go perfectly but you know i like that the show changes i mean that's kind of part of what is so appealing about it is that especially it's always been my thought that that's why Doctor Who seems to appeal to, uh, you know, creative people and, and, and the, the people it does appeal to because it does have that ability to kind of, you know, invoke the imagination and it can really change to be anything. It, you know, you right. need those, um, you know, those those elements. Uh, what's the um, what did he call it? The, the Moffat manifesto in, uh, which I think was actually a Stephen Moffat joke in his column in Dr. Who magazine, I think is where that comes from. But what he said was the core elements are a police box, a frock coat and cliffhangers. I chuck out all the gratuitous continuity because it's dull. I don't care where the doctor comes from or why he travels the universe. I just want him out of those TARDIS doors and having adventures. Us kids want Narnia, not the wardrobe. And, I mean, uh, it's like super ironic that Moffat should say a set about continuity because yeah. he well, he throw in so many little <laughs> nods and even more more than just nods to the yeah like the fifty year history of the and you know keep in mind he said this early on and when he was do, you know doing this uh, when he doing the job but he also becomes I think there gets a lot of weight to his own continuity the storylines he you know started to started to smother at a point but i think i appreciate that like moffat himself acknowledges that like series six started like falling apart under its own weight and that you know that that was he's i think he's pretty much acknowledged that yeah he's he would have done a lot of things differently in retrospect he's He's very good and and satisfied with that yeah he's always a bit self-deprecating his sense of humor is but he's also very good at like seriously critiquing his own work. Like I've found like his writing about Doctor Who and, and his experience is, is very interesting. And he's not afraid to kind of tell you, okay, well, we tried that out 
didn't really right. work. So, <laughs> um, yeah. which is cool. I, I have not seen the eleventh hour since well, since it first broadcast. I know that oh, yeah. a lot of people will often recommend it. That if you know, it's one of those. Since that question keeps coming up, so if you had to start doing someone Doctor Who, what episode yeah. would you start with? This I think a lot of people recommend this as a good one to start with. And um, absolutely yes. been mine for many years now. When people ask, like, it's like, yeah, eleventh hour, like. It doesn't give you a lot of the like, who is the doctor and like all this, like, you know, what is the right. TARDIS? Where is he from? But it gives you enough and it gives you the excitement and it gives you, I think one of the really important things, and John Arnold talks a lot about this in the book, is it gives you that children's show sense of playfulness that was missing from the original like right. 2005 run, the Davies era. Yeah, um, yeah. And certainly there's a lot of like fun, silly stuff going on in there, but it, I think Stephen Moffat has always been obsessed with this idea that it, at the, at the core of this, this is a children's show, you know, it can right. have adult fans, it can have adult, you know, creators and even adult situations or scenarios, but you know, it should have that kind of sense of adventure and mystery and, you know, yeah. uh, those yeah, things. There was that, a lot of times I thought, and again, this is, probably just my bias talking. There are times in the Russell Davies era of Doctor Who that things sometimes just seem to be sort of needlessly cruel. And yeah. I think with um, Moffat avoided, I mean, obviously people still die and all sorts of things, <laughs> right. terrible things happen, but there's somehow there's just seemed to be a little more element of cruelty at uh, times in the yeah. Davies era. And, well, I well, mean, yeah. maybe that's just my sort no, of thing. I, I, I agree. And I think um, luckily if people are fans of that, it's back to in tenfold in what Chris Chibnall's offered us so far. So um, <laughs> anyway, I won't even go, won't even go into it. Cause I think we've already discussed that as a great, but um, so yeah, I didn't want to jump back and, and I, I certainly don't mind going off on tangents. It's 90% of what, what I do, but um, did want to get back to, I, we were talking about like one of the major things of like re regenerating a show and what, what's different about, you know, when the right. 11th hour airs and um, everybody sees this for the first time, what's, what changes about Doctor Who? And I do think that comes back to the character of the Doctor, because I think Stephen Moffat has changed. I mean, he's changed a lot of things about the show, but he has changed this character a little bit. And um there's a few things that I, and I think earlier I said that I could never really put my finger on it. And there's, I think three things that John Arnold brings to the forefront of what is different. And I think between these three things, that's exactly what changed. And that is um, one, and this is going to get a lot of gripey faces from some fans. And, and, and I really never want to like put myself in a position of like doing any gatekeeping, like be a fan of what you love. I mean, Doctor Who is something for everybody. Sure. Uh, never am I going to say that there's a right way or a wrong way for it to be, but the Doctor's asexuality is the number one thing that uh, definitely changes he here. Um, right. He, this is something that both Stephen and John Arnold points out end quotes, both Stephen Moffat and Matt Smith felt very strongly about uh, when coming up with, you know, who this Doctor was going to be and that he wasn't going to be, you know, the 10th doctor who is, you know, has, has certainly more of a human aspect and uh, is romantically interested in other humans and, uh, or in humans. And um, yeah. And I think giving him that general, and maybe not that he's entirely asexual because later, you know, with river song and, you know, other, right. we, we see there, there is some, some capability of that character to have 
romantic feelings or a relationship, but he's just not there with his human. <laughs> like that's not uh, what he is. He also finds it awkward, and he's he he kind of. Um, it's part of his alienness that he doesn't quite get what all of that is about. And it's <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, with river song also, it's, he's really, it's he often is more like a, most of the time he seems like some sort of awkward teenager being mm -hmm. confronted and not really knowing what to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think the 11th because... doctor was ever comfortable with. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, and maybe this is sort of the childlike thing that they also have a lot of um, sort of, in the 11th Doctor's era, they, maybe not a lot, but they do have jokes about uh, nudity and mm -hmm. <laughs> him sort of wandering around like hiding under the skirts of um, the Queen and I forget which episode. And Right. <laughs> yeah, I do in the, I know in, in, is it in Last Christmas where he goes to the Clara's family's um, Christmas and doesn't have his, fil like, digital clothes on correctly right. or whatever and so it everybody last christmas it was that was the that oh was the yeah that was the Santa Peter Capaldi, Capaldi. One of Capaldi yeah you're right you're right special. it was yeah, um, I forget which episode it was anyway it was okay. one of yeah. the christmas ones that matt right. smith did <laughs> um might have even been time no it wasn't time of the doctor that one was chock full before of... time of the doctor just the episode before that maybe yeah but Anyway, <laughs> besides yes. the point, but yeah, so so his his not being a romantic lead in this, so mm -hmm. it, it gave the ability, and not that Amy has no interest, she obviously has, is a little conflicted early in the in the series, and uh, it right. allows her and Rory's relationship to be examined, and I don't know, it just seems like it's it's smart writing. I think it allows that relationship to grow, you know, out, outside of the Doctor thing, and not being just about the Doctor companion and and the romance aspect of everything so and i know some people love that aspect about the show and wish for it um, yes i you know it's not like i'm going to turn off the tv and stop watching if they decide to go that route again it's fine it's it's what it is but i i tend to prefer the doctor to be a um non-romantic lead in the in the show and uh yeah yeah but um that's a it's a personal preference and certainly not everybody feels that way and i think uh that leads quite comfortably into the next thing that's changed about him and rather than being and john arnold makes a really good point about this rather than being um presented as an equal so the doctor this this obviously relates to romance as well as um um kind of the the role everybody plays in the tardis team right and uh he kind of takes on the 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 position of a patriarch almost which right. is certainly harkens all the way back to the beginnings of the show because that's very much um who the doctor was uh especially for its through his first many incarnations i would say right yeah and, although he also points out uh john arnold does point out that there's more of an element of equality with the companions they put up with less of his uh craft than because right. they say that like rose and martha Maybe not so much Donna, where all a little dazzled, bedazzled by him. So, yeah, and kind of let him get away with where things that you know companions like Donna or Amy would call him on, but especially Amy. Right. Um, they also start with a relationship that is uh, kind of founded on lies and dishonesty, and and I didn't really think of it that way until reading this book and went, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. The doctor is 
not being totally honest with her and why he's interested in her and why he keeps revisiting her. Um, she's not being totally honest with the doctor about what's going on in her life and right. why she wants to run away and, um, you know, why she needs to be back right away tomorrow and all of that stuff. Uh, right. And um, the, the, the trust between them is slowly built throughout their, their time together. And they learn, you know, kind of about one another and, and, you know, um, so it's a relationship that grows rather than a relationship that kind of is set. Right. And I don't know. I don't want to sell anything, you know, any of the character development in the Davies era short because it certainly exists. It's there, but um, yeah. So I think that that's different as well um, in this version of the doctor. And he does point out that how, in the end, like Amy does um, choose uh, Rory. Mm-hmm. You know, she has, uh, she still has that childhood thing about the raggedy doctor. But um, once all is said and done, she um, goes back uh, with Rory, mm-hmm. as opposed to Rose, who had to be locked off in a different universe and given her own version of the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, and I. I've always had trouble with that concept of um, I, I never doubted for a second that the doctor like loved his companions in a way, you know, the almost fatherly, like brotherly, like, um, but right. be having, you know, having an interest in having a, you know, long-term romantic relationship with just seems very out of character. And it, and it doesn't seem that out of character for the 10th doctor by the time you get to know him and what he's all about. But, um, for any of the other ones, really, <laughs> it's yeah. uh, quite quite hard to imagine. Um, <laughs> even the current Doctor, I would say, and I know people are really uh, big fans, or the fan fiction is certainly leaning into her having romantic relationships with Companion. Yes. Um, and you know, like I said, I'm not against it. It's just it, it's not what I what I prefer for for the character because I really do, do think it changes the character, changes what the show's about a little bit. So. Right. Um, I mean, in some ways, I think the problem with it is that it, and it's not like Moffat completely. Um, I think, you know, you don't necessarily want the doctor to be kind of like a Captain Kirk and, you know, have a, have <laughs> right. a squeeze in every star base. Or, you know. Can you imagine? That'd so be like American kind of Doctor Who, that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it was like, well, Moffat was around and sure you had, then River's song became very important in the narrative. And she comes back a couple of times for Capaldi, but for the most time, she is really a Matt Smith thing. For somebody that's ostensibly such an important character in the Doctor's life, it just seems kind of weird that it's only at that one time that she's there and important. And then when the new team and the new Doctor comes along, it's like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. And I, I do think it was, I mean, he kind of like wrote a bit, you know, the ending, the way, so and I don't want to say the ending, you never know with this show, but the way that we've left River Song as a character, uh, or the last moment that, that her and the Doctor are together, the, the 12th Doctor and, and River was a nice Right. right like that was yes. a it did it did le- lend a little bit of you know gravitas to their relationship and yes. you know show that it was potentially a little a bit more romantic than we might have imagined it was um before right anyway that's um 
<laughs> but yeah, I, I think in general, the Moffat era did change that. And, the, and, and, it, and I think it harkens back to um, a little closer interpretation of not every, not every classic doctor, but too many of my favorite classic doctors. You know, he's got a, the doctor's more alien. He's kind of hard to relate to at times. He's secretive. He's, right. Uh, right. Um, he's, right. A bit of, he's a bit of a schemer. And can you always trust him? You can always trust him to do the right thing in the end, but can you always trust him that he's telling you the truth? Right. Um, you know, yeah. he works things a little bit, holds his cards, you know, close or whatever, but. Yeah. I mean, like they point out and um, like in Tomb of the Cybermen, how the second doctor is, seems to be sort of manipulating the uh, the starship team and, and helping them to get over the traps and everything. So there's mm. something a little skewy about it. You know, yeah. I mean, he knows more than he's letting on there too, obviously, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I know Matt, Matt Smith always harkens back to that very episode, I right. think, Tomb of the Cybermen as being his major influence. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. If you remember when the 50th anniversary, they were they showed like one adventure of each uh, doctor, that, and it was hosted by uh, Stephen Moffat. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so for the second doctor, they did Tomb of the Cybermen. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, I think they, they both saw that as a very important one. And I'm sure Matt Smith, you know, saw that because Stephen Moffat put it in front of him you know? <laughs> but, um yeah I saw that as an important moment in the you know character development of the doctor which I I don't disagree with that I think uh right. and obviously you know every doctor's got their little different quirks yeah, the yeah, actors the things that the but I think the thing that most of the classic doctors shared was their um kind of not inhumanness that makes it sound like they're cruel or something, but kind of their alien nature and the fact that they, they couldn't be related to, you know, or, or expected to behave like a human being does all the time. And I think that especially comes out when the, we get the fourth doctor who very, seems very much. Um, well, there's, that's like, there's a, that direct line, right. In the periods of Mars, I think where um, mm -hmm. Sarah Jane tells him that, you know, I think somebody has been killed and she, comments about his you know that it's you know it's something about him being almost like inhuman or something in, and yeah i think again, she says inhuman and <laughs> not a human I, time lord i walk in eternity oh god i'm such a nerd <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes in, a, in the, all of the best ways no. <laughs> um so, yeah, so they address that um at times it yeah. comes out so the um, Arnold book, I guess I only had a couple other. We tackled my entire like third topic that I had written down just just <laughs> off the cuff. So don't even really need to <laughs> recover any of those uh, any of those tracks. But the I do think that it's worth bringing up. We we talked about it briefly, but worth bringing up the um, criticism and label that this era gets sometimes as being. Uh, fairy tale esque and you brought that up a couple of times um earlier and i i think it's especially if we're just talking about the 11th hour it would be very hard to not think of that when uh watching this do you think it's a fair assessment of the entirety of stephen moffat's run or just i think there is more of an element of magic i think it yeah it's, i think it is kind of a fair way to um 
describe it. Mm-hmm. And Begum especially, I mean, he doesn't do himself any favors with like, especially with his the Christmas specials <laughs> that he writes, because yeah. those are like all about literally fairy tales happy endings and (laughs) including doing a you know narnia-esque one and uh yes yeah yeah Yeah, i think for and it may just be that he doesn't like it you know his his stuff getting labeled under like it's you know davies is the is whatever soap opera kitchen sink you know and moffat is fairy tale and he i don't think he likes that it all falls under that label there is no way he wasn't thinking of that when I don't know if people sort of, of yeah I don't know if he thinks that people are just using it as a sort of a negative sort of shorthand because I think when people say something is like a soap opera they usually mean it in a kind of derogatory way yeah it's kind right. of like a lot of people who criticize Deep Space Nine will say oh it's just a soap opera so like um, right and they mean they like, mean that it's not exciting opera. enough or whatever yeah and it's it's talky talk and it's character driven and yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I agree. I think he, he takes it as it's a, it, a criticism. And when I say it, I don't necessarily mean it that way. It's actually a lot of those elements that I love about this era. Series five. And I, I'm running everything back through my head, like the entire entirety of new who right now, before I like go on record and I don't do favorites well, but I feel like series five at the time when I was watching it really and now it seems funny because there's almost like there's more than double that amount of series now. Um, I don't think I ever got bored with Doctor Who, not even a little, but I feel like it still felt like a fresh breath of air and it was just so rewarding. Like it, uh, mm-hmm. I felt like the doctor was, by the time I adjusted to Matt Smith, because I'll admit I didn't necessarily, I wasn't sure, but I've never been sure. <laughs> of a new doctor the first time out anyway it takes me you know i have to revisit i watch the whole series and i go back and then you know then i decide like oh i really like what they're doing uh or you know or not but never i've never actually had a not i don't have a totally not there's not a doctor i like dislike or don't like at all like um so but yeah i think uh series five upon revisiting is is perhaps the strongest um I don't know. I, I, I don't think want... that's a lot of people would agree with you on that, actually. Um, yeah, just just episode just... for episode, and the arc works so well. And then, right. you know, of course, season six gets very messy. But <laughs> well, I mean, that, again, just looking at the arc of season five, I mean, the way that he ends that season, you know, she, she does a poem <laughs> and brings the universe back into order. And, and yeah, how, how can Stephen Moffat? criticize us for saying it's like very <laughs> yeah but, but it's... yeah when i was actually looking at um like i said i haven't really gone back and re-watched a lot of these episodes this was the first time i had re-watched the 11th hour but it really makes me want to go back and um re-watch them again when you know i'm usually kind of critical about things that i see and you know i i re-watched the 11th hour and i think the only thing i could say was that um the uh, the CGI looked a little ropey in the beginning when yes. he's flying and <laughs> hanging out of the TARDIS, but that was really the only negative thing I could say about it. <laughs> um, a negative that's not really a negative is that they wasted Olivia Coleman in that tiny yes. role that she played. Like she should have, she should have a meaty role in Doctor Who, and she got like a couple of lines. But this was um, that. Yeah, that was the other thing. I mean, uh, yeah, they had um, uh, shoot. Uh, I forget the name of the actress who's playing Doctor. She's Brett. 
relatively prominent. Um, Olivia Coleman, the actor who plays Jeff, I was wondering, huh, why does he look so familiar? And then, yeah, he's done a lot of work since then. He was like one of the leads in the Umbrella Academy and oh, okay. Game I, of Thrones. And <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, maybe I recognize it from Game. I knew I recognized it from somewhere that I didn't necessarily the first few times I'd seen it, but um, I mean, yeah. maybe Olivia Coleman wasn't that big at the time. Yeah, I don't know. Just it seems disappointing. Obviously, she could always come back, but right. Um, I at least that right. wouldn't bug me. We've. <laughs> Yeah. I think the main, main, my biggest gripe with us and the Moffat era was really with the Cold War because they put David Warner and Liam Cunningham in the same episode. And <laughs> yeah. it was just a one part episode, not even a two parter. I was like, yeah, ah. they didn't get enough individual screen time. Like, yes. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Great cast, but not see, enough. But... <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Unfortunately, that was the only David Warner we've gotten, I think. So, so. yeah. Outside of Big Finish, he's done a lot of work with them. But oh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, just just to cap off the fairy tale thing, I agree with you 100%. I actually think when I say, you know, it's it's a lot like a fairy tale, I mean that in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and I think maybe it was, for me, maybe that was missing a little bit from the show. Like, I mean, from the get-go, I was using the word magic and, and it just something felt like it clicked in this era and all of a sudden I was, you know, invigorated and i was really into you know the i was laughing i think at the right times and you know i feel like this this episode is not incredibly like bombastic it's a it's a little english village and um you know there there's you know the big eyeball spaceships and stuff but uh i feel like i don't know just the way it's put together and the it's the way it's acted you i think by the end of it you feel like you know, getting out of your chair and applauding when he finally, you know, makes his big doctor speech at the, <laughs> at the attraction right. on top of the building. And yeah, um, I mean, you, you, you get, a, you get a glimpse of all the doctors, which is yeah. always fun. You get a glimpse of not only monsters from the 2005 onwards, but you get to see a sea devil and a couple of others yeah. from the seventies. And <laughs> it's, it's, and, you know, it's it's probably just rewarding because of, you know, those of us that have actually like watched all, you know, watched right. all of it and consume it repeatedly. But yeah, I'm such a, such a huge nerd for moments like that when everything's like, Ooh, stuff that's tying into like, <laughs> the classic series and everything. It's like, um, I guess yeah, the only other thing a... that I was disappointed about was that uh, unit was not on that conference call. <laughs> yeah. It they... should have been there. It's an obvious place for them to be. Yeah, and and Stephen Moffat, you know, later certainly isn't afraid to use unit. I don't know why, you know, they weren't there, but yeah. Oh well. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure if we succeeded here in uh, not talking just about the episode and staying on Arnold's book, but I think we gave it a good shot. So. Uh, and I think the issue fun. with the book is that the book itself is like it's very much a. I mean, it's written after the end of. The Capaldi's uh, tenure. Yeah. yeah. So it so really sort of discusses everything through the entire. I, I think it is more, of, onwards. more about the Moffat era than it is about the 11th hour, but it does treat the 11th hour as that moment that it, you know, right. That ushered in that era. And right. um, yeah, so I, um, let's I go mean, ahead. I enjoyed it. I think because, I mean, like I said, I found myself um, agreeing with a lot of the things that um, he had to say and said, I'm a fan of Moffat. It seems that um, John Arnold is as well. He um, pushes back against uh, accusations of uh, misogyny that have been 
thrown out against Moffat. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm not the best person to judge that. Yes, I agree that he doesn't come across as misogynistic to me. Yeah. And yeah. he does also point out something that I've always what, said is that uh, if you read his uh, Moffat's uh, short story, Continuity Errors, and you see the curse of fatal death, and that's pretty <laughs> much all of Moffat's Doctor Who ideas are rolled up into those two <laughs> pieces of work. They are, but got to see them in long form now. So yes, it's, uh... <laughs> absolutely. But it's, it's, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> so um, let's uh, go ahead and give this thing a grade. If you had to grade this thing out of, uh, let's do out of five bow ties just to uh, celebrate the arrival of the 11th Doctor. Um, what do you think you'd give this thing for? I was interested to see that that was Matt Smith's idea and that Stephen Moffat was against it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think that's true. Yep. <laughs> But uh, no, it's an entertaining, uh, quick read, uh, informative. Um, if you're reading it just to see a review of the 11th hour, it's probably like a two out of five. But <laughs> as a something to read in itself, I would give it a five out of five, probably. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. Um, I think it was really interesting. And for a like nonfiction critical text, it was really fun and fast read. And I think it sufficiently dives in deep to the whole Stephen Moffat era. Um, It does help. I think that the episode itself is a favorite of mine and that Arnold kind of taps into like most of the points that make it such a like momentous occasion and kind of the changes and everything that it ushered in. Um, I think I would highly recommend this book to uh, other Doctor Who fans that are fans of, you know, Matt Smith uh, and, and the Stephen Moffat era in general, because that's really what it's kind of a celebration of those things. Um, and not in a way that it's, you know, cutting down on any of the, the show that has gone right. past, but but pointing right. out what makes, you know, the Moffat years special and, and unique. Um, the one gripe I have that you brought up a couple of times is it's it's just not really about the episode, the 11th hour. It's more about the impact of the episode. Um, I could have used a little more like, breakdown of what was going on in you know that specific episode however i've not read any of the other black archives books so i don't really have a a means of comparison to any others um this does make me interested in checking out more of them though so yeah absolutely so i think i'm going to land at a 4.5 out of five bow ties i don't know how you get half a bow tie but we're gonna we're gonna do it so (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but yeah i find it highly enjoyable and i i'm interested in reading as many of these as I can get my hands on. And I kind of wanted to just go ahead and order uh, John Arnold's Rose book because I'd be interested yeah. in what he has to say about that. So I'm expecting that might be a retrospective of the entire, you know, Davies era in comparison to the classic series if he went the same route. So I would enjoy that, I think. But um, yeah, so yeah, I think we're, it's about a, all we could say about it without like, you know, just reading out of it. So it's, um, yeah, I guess uh, all that's left to do for this episode of the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is hit the button on the randomizer and see what's up for next time. For next time on the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast, we will be reading a spinoff novel called Time Hunter, The Child of Time by George Mann and David J. Howe. Um, and I don't exactly know where this fits in. <laughs> uh, I did I did read a synopsis and got the book ordered, so I, I will be finding out soon. But um, yeah, so this one. is, um, 
Yeah, it's apparently a spin-off series called The Time Hunter. Um, it does have a non-canon version of the Doctor called Dr. Smith in it, apparently, from what I've imagined. So I'm probably making a fool of myself because all I've read is a brief synopsis of it. But um, anyway, yeah, so we'll we'll find out. Um, I'm kind of excited like because a of my totally... sort of thing with like <laughs> Colin Baker as the stranger. <laughs> Maybe, but uh, but it is written by two like main, you know, major contributors, Doctor right. Who contributors. Yeah. So I, I'm interested yeah. um, and looking forward to reading. So um, I like uh, I like George Mann stuff usually. So yeah, and I, I don't think I've ever read any of David Howe's fiction. I've read many of his yeah. uh, nonfiction books. I own a lot of them, but um, so this will be a first time into. And I know he writes fiction. I just. Uh, yeah. Right. So yeah. Yeah. I haven't um, read any of his uh, fiction either. So looking forward to that. I do know if anyone's out there that is reading along with us, I do know it is available. Um, the paperback was pretty easy to come by, but is available on Kindle for relatively cheap or inexpensive. So okay. um, yeah, check that oh, out sure. and uh, come back and Which join is... us next time on the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Asad, I want to thank you as always for being here and reading all these obscure. Um, <laughs> thank you no it's fun i mean uh, me like, and... <laughs> like i said i i wanted to check out the obverse uh, things and um this gave me an opportunity to and it kind of whetted my appetite so <laughs> yeah yeah i'm gonna probably try to dive into the one at least the ones i already have sitting on my shelf because there's no longer a good excuse because this one was great thanks again for listening i hope you will consider joining us next time for our discussion about a doctor who television story as well as our discussions about doctor who audio adventures both audio books and audio plays also we will be doing discussions of doctor who novels non-fiction books and other fun stuff until next time i have been your host eric Branson, and this has been the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Special thanks to all of our guests and contributors. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a proud member of the Video Junkyard podcast family and can be found on most major podcast providers including SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Podcast Addict, and Spotify. Doctor Who theme composed by Ron Grainer, arranged as Doctor Who retro theme by Neon Frontier. All rights to Doctor Who and its related materials belong to the BBC. I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, host and producer of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcasts. Now that you're listening to a thorough discussion of random Doctor Who episodes, why not find them on the Target book range, or the hardcover, or anything else with Doctor Who? For all things Doctor Who collectibles, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and everywhere you find your Doctor Who podcasts. Also a proud member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. You're listening to Police Box in a Junkyard podcast. You ask him, he may show it. He simply elevates a stone where you want, I would throw it. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a New Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. 
find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the only podcast to discuss, in story order, all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit. And every two weeks or so, I'm joined by a two- to three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. We also get the views of intermediate, casual, and novice fans who either have never seen the show or who have never read these books until these podcasts, including... Dalton Hughes. And... Alison Fitzsafried. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find good podcasts, or even ones like ours. You're listening to the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Enjoy your travels. <laughs> 